This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Club in real life. Our live event in San Diego, March 12th through 14th. Get your tickets now at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCCIRL. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts? Ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits. Then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work. That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 164 as we chat with copywriter and podcaster Glenn Fisher about becoming a direct response copywriter and writing a book about it, what it takes to write good copy, his writing processes, the mistakes he's made, and what he thinks the future of copywriting looks like. Welcome, Glenn. Hey, Glenn. Hello. Thanks for having me. So let's kick this off with your story. How did you end up as a copywriter slash author slash speaker? Um, let's hear your story. Um, cool. So yeah, uh, it's it's we'll break it down into parts. Uh, as with, is the case with most copywriters, I got into it completely by mistake. Uh, I think I've spoken to about one out of a thousand copywriters who kind of went, I'm going to be a copywriter. Uh, I started out as an accountant, um, which was an obvious mistake, um, but I did that for a few years and thought I wanted to be a bank manager. Uh, I've never met anyone else who, as a 15-year-old kid, wanted to be a bank manager, but that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and I was kind of going along on that path for a while until something snapped in my brain and went wrong or maybe right depending which way you look at it and I figured I wanted to do writing in some form so I ended up I need I knew I couldn't just kind of walk into a job and go hey I'm a writer now uh, would you mind employing me so I went back to uni I was probably about 20 two-ish, something around that mark. Went back to uni and did a creative writing course, a uh, degree uh, here in England. Did that and then I come from a very small town in the northeast of England where um, they they barely can read, uh, let alone write. Um, so I had to move to the big city, to London, and get a job. And I applied for as many writing jobs as I could. Anything that's a junior writer, um, I applied for. Uh, and the only place uh, where I managed to get an interview, let alone uh, any response, was um, a company that at the time I had little to no idea who they were or what they did. Uh, but it was a company called Agora, which uh, many of your listeners will be familiar with, especially in the US. Um, and they had an office in London. I applied for a junior writer job and um, got the job. Um, still, for probably at least three months sat in an office in London with direct response um, sales letters all around me, not knowing what the hell was going on, whether what any of this meant, didn't know really what a copywriter was. Um, but obviously, as you guys will know, having entered that world, I'd kind of very luckily struck the jackpot as far as uh, learning to be a copywriter goes. So, uh, so it's purely chance that I kind of discovered copywriting, uh, got this job at Agora. And then from there, Obviously, uh, I was very lucky that I, at the time when I uh, joined the company, um, I have no idea of dates and stuff. I kind of lose track after this. But um, it was a time when Bill Bonner, the owner, and Mark Ford or Michael Masterson, depending on their, how much of the backstory you know, uh, they were actually in England at the time and they were training the uh, UK writers um, it was uh, So it was a fantastic opportunity to work directly with them and learn a lot from them. Um, worked at Agora for about a decade uh, directly and then um, more recently went freelance. Still write uh, letters for Agora, but also uh, wrote the book and that's where we are now. So that's how I became an author. And then once I had that, it was kind of, right, well, I'll start speaking and do that kind of thing and then do a podcast. And then I can't... I, I'm a bit of a workaholic, so I just keep doing more and more things. But I think that's how I got here, and I want to do it in a shorter way. I tend to ramble, so you'll have to stop me. Rambling's always good. Before we get to you know the book and the speaking, the podcasting, those early days as you were learning from you know some of your mentors, what were the kinds of things that uh, Mark and others were teaching you? You know, and I'm asking this because I think a lot of copywriters who listen to this podcast 
you know, want ideas of how they can get better faster. Maybe they're starting out. They want to know the, the first resources that they ought to be looking at. So what did that look like as you were learning the skill of copywriting and, and more precisely uh, direct response copywriting? Sure. So, I mean, it's funny because I spend all my time trying to kind of uh, share this information and, and kind of educate people and what have you and teach people the skills that I've learned over the years. Um, and I've tried to distill them in very easy and simple ways. But I, and I think that I always used to say Mark, Mark was brilliant at this and both Bill and Mark are like, like this in their nature. Uh, they have the kind of yin and yang, but they both have the same, um, kind of philosophy that they just keep things simple and they reduce everything to its absolute simplest kind of unarguable form. So never enter an argument with them because you will eventually lose because they, they kind of can reduce things to just very simple ideas. And I think that probably without getting too philosophical is the whole thing behind the success of a goal because they take things down to its simplest idea. It's all about ideas. So I learned very early on that, um, you, you live and survive and, and grow, succeed, whatever by your ideas. And if an idea is no good, um, it doesn't matter how good a writer you are, how clever you are, um, and how much you manipulate, um, the, the bad idea that you've got if, if, if it's a bad idea it's not going to work so you need to spend the time um, on good ideas and searching for those ideas very few this sounds obvious but very few businesses are able to do that and I will say able to do that because I think everybody wants to have good ideas and, and spend the time to, to come up with good ideas but as businesses and in the busy world where everybody's fighting and competing it's very hard to give the time that you actually need to give to um, come up with those ideas and spend the time you need to. So, so that was a real kind of fundamental thing that I learned early on. Um, then there's like, I mean, there's so much stuff, but there's the, the technical things that always stick in my mind. Um, Mark always said, stick to one idea. And it's one of the simplest pieces of advice. It's one of the hardest to follow. We, we naturally want to go off on tangents and do things and add more depth and all this kind of stuff. But sticking to one idea was a big thing. And then from Bill, the classic, um, speak to people as you or write to people as you would be speaking to them in the bar. Um, it, those two pieces of information, if, if you can talk about a, a very simple idea, a very simple language, um, you, there's, there's nothing really harder than that. Um, so it's, it's all about finding the idea and then just expressing it in a very simple and effective way. Um, obviously I could go into the nitty gritty. There's the four U's and four P's and all this kind of stuff, but really it's just about finding the idea and then expressing that in its simplest form. Can we dig deeper into that and talk about how to find the great ideas and what your process looks like for finding great ideas to the point where you're like, Oh yeah, this, this is it. Sure. <laughs> that's the so that's the uh, the number one hardest question in the world um but I've, I've kind of i've asked it a lot myself and uh one the thing that's i i still sticks in my mind now actually it's, it's a good friend of mine he, he still works with agora um in london um in one of the offshoots there and when i asked him about it a guy called nick he he said one of the best ways to find good ideas is to is to spot the bad ideas. So you're kind of whittling out the bad ideas. You can usually spot when something's not right. It's harder to go, that's a winning idea. We'll go with that. Um, but so first of all, get rid of as much chaff and crap as you can. Um, then about for my process when it comes to uh, generating an idea, I think one of the biggest things I've learned over the years is that the best way to try, be weird, be out there and be um, be free with your ideas. Just kind of jot as much stuff down as you can. Keep thinking, and this is a cliche number 306, but think outside the box. Like just say as many mad things as you can. Connect um, one, one old idea to something new, something strange. Just keep writing as many ideas as you can down. And then once you've got them, just ask as many people, try them out, test things. Um, my, my partner, Ruth, I bless her because I, she's kind of the main wall I have these days while I'm around the house. I will just be constantly saying, oh, did you know this or this? Or, or what about this? Have you, yeah, she's just going, what are you talking about, Glenn? Like, stop, stop, stop bothering me. But it's, so I'm always trying to kind of 
test things and try things out with people around me. And I think having that um, opportunity to do that, that's, it's not very, uh, pre- well, it is quite practical, but it's, it's not really like the golden secret to finding good ideas, but you've got to test people out. And one of the things I encourage people to do as much as possible is test out your ideas on people who aren't necessarily involved in the, um, in the business that you're writing for say so um everybody like if you go into a room of copy agora trained copywriters everyone there is going to have baggage and they all want to kind of prove that they know oh yeah i see what you're doing with that yeah i I maybe do this you want to go in with people who don't really know anything about it and just have a natural gut emotional reaction to and go don't get it or yeah i like that or tell me more and it's that natural reaction that you're looking for as much as possible um or where you kind of need to learn to spot people's reactions to ideas i think so this is a a really different um direction i think but uh you're based in the uk we're in the us and the kinds of ideas that we see between the two countries seem to be very different in a lot of ways and my sense is even with a company like agora which in the united states is very in your face and pushes a lot of lines that uh, occasionally even make some people uncomfortable maybe we don't see that quite as much in the UK. Would you talk just a little bit about the differences uh, between the cultures and how that impacts copy, especially where you're writing, uh, you know, across the pond? Sure. I, um, it's, it's a funny one, this, and I've, I've kind of spent many years trying to figure it out and, and truly understand what the differences are and whether that's actually my own bias of going, oh, well, we're British and we, we wouldn't react to such such things. And I always, I sticks in my mind is I went to see Tony Robbins um, speak in, in London. Uh, there's a big arena there called the Excel Arena or building kind of thing. It's like thousands of people um, when it's at capacity. And I thought, right, Tony Robbins for me is like the almost the ultimate expression of like American in your face copy like personified he's, he's going to go out there he's going to kind of have you all stood up shaking your shoulders and pumping your fists and all this kind of thing i thought well there's no way um stiff upper lip british people are gonna go for this like no chance anyway we, we were working with the organizers and we got some tickets and went down and didn't saw it and i was just gobsmacked by the thousands of um what you would assume was stiff up British people, um, absolutely going for it, uh, fully on board, like just absolutely with everything he was saying. And I think with more modern people like Gary Vaynerchuk and all this kind of stuff, that American brashness, of course, you're going to get that natural British reaction of like, oh, well, that's a little bit too far. But I think there's still so many people that are engaged with that. So that's always been like my kind of like, Uh, devil's advocate maybe there isn't any differences i think like when you're telling the way you tell uh the story the way you um present an idea maybe there's going to be some differences there so just in the nature of the language um the way you um the way in america you basically uh, it's built on the american dream and everybody believes they have the right to achieve greatness in Britain, in, in England, it's it's kind of the opposite. It's like, actually, well, we shouldn't, we, we don't deserve to have that. So we'll just sit here and stand in the queue and not not kind of push forward. So this, in the way you tell it, I think that's slightly different. And in that natural belief of actually I can achieve uh, something, I think that's much more natural in America than it is in England. That said, and what I'm kind of getting to is I still am more inclined these days to believe if the idea is strong enough, if the idea, if the concept behind it, if what you are actually uh, selling, if, you're, if you're, what you're trying to get people to engage with is um, sound, if it is um, interesting, if it is unique, if it's useful, it, then, then it will translate, be it in America or England. We've seen uh, letters like The End of America, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, um, that translated to the end of Brazil, the end of Australia, the end of um, Britain. It, it, it worked because it had a fundamental uh, idea behind it that was easily um, adaptable. You have to do the nuance, so it was a slightly different argument in America. Is um, I think it was about the debt kind of thing. We had to adjust that slightly in the UK, but the the idea was so strong that it it naturally translated. It was just the telling was. Um, slightly adapted. So I think 
if you go back to ideas and first principles, it's the same. It's just how you tell it and the voice that you're using. So it really comes down to tone of voice, I think, more than anything. Okay, because you mentioned Tony Robbins, I can't overlook that. Can you talk about your experience at the Tony Robbins event and also maybe your, I haven't been to one yet, um, and also what lessons you took away from Tony or from that event that have impacted you the most? Sure. Well, in fact, I use uh, that experience uh, to open my current talks um, because I, when I became a speaker and started doing these uh, speaking to people and, and kind of having to talk for an hour or something, I sat there and was like, right, uh, how do I, I suddenly realized how much I could talk and how much information I had to share. And I thought, well, how do I distill this down into like a, a, an hour or a half an hour or whatever? And that comes from when I went to see Tony Robbins, he, he came on stage and the first thing he did, he, he kind of went, uh, guys, I've only got three hours. Um, so there's no way I'll be able to tell you. And, and with me and my, my boss at the time, we kind of sat there and was like, three hours, no one talks for three hours. What are you talking about? And he was like, sometimes I'd talk for 24 hours, 48 hours, blah, blah. He was thinking, get real, that doesn't happen. Anyway, three hours into him and he's still at full flow and he's kind of, he's, his shirt, he's wearing a jacket and shirt and his shirt is sweating. And it's slowly reaching from each armpit to the center of his chest. And I said, when that sweat patch meets, then I think he'll be finished. But that whole idea of, of the fact that he could talk for so long and, and share so much information like was is stuck in my mind ever since. And I think actually now, I think, well, actually, fair play, because you can when you're trying to share that much stuff. So I was interested by that. I was, um, I've always been... Um, uh, respectful and of of anyone who can get up and talk and hold a crowd and i've I'd seen uh, i think before that i think one of the best speakers i've ever seen is an old school guy i think he's still going i'm not sure uh, alex mandosian is it he did a, a great uh talk I, I saw an awi event one year and he was fantastic and i just like uh speakers and i like there's something genuine about the way he engages the audience. And I thought, well, that's fair enough. It's not necessarily my cup of tea, but it, but he just, he had a lot of qualities that I thought were, were good. There's a, a comedian in England called Lenny Henry. And this is a really weird thing, but it just always sticks in my mind. But he was like quite an out there presenter on TV. And he, I saw him interviewed once and they said, how do you kind of engage the audiences in the way you do? Why are you so interesting? And he, he did a thing where he just went up to the camera, held the camera that was filming him and kind of moved his head around the camera. So kind of breaking that fourth wall and speaking to you and, and just kind of shaking you out. And, and it was so engaging that way. And I think Tony Robbins was the same in that he kind of could break that down. So uh, so my takeaway from him is is just to kind of go like turn everything up and like just believe you're the... You, respect the fact that you're the one that people have come to see and, uh, and go for it. But it was interesting. It was weird. What actually happened because we were far too British um, about three hours in when everybody, we were like, we need to get out. Like this is going to go on for ages. So when he kind of got everybody to stand up and kind of maybe like raise their hands in the air or something and cheer and say, I am the mightiest or something, as everybody did that, we kind of we ducked and ran between everybody's legs and ran out because um, we could only see. So so you much. didn't walk on the coals, the hot coals. No, we didn't. He, he didn't. was talking about that, and again, you kind of sit there going, "Get real." That's that's not a thing that happens in real life, is it? And then it's like, no, he does. And then I, I did that intro um, a talk I did in London recently, and and someone came up to me afterwards and was like, "Oh, I, I've been to one of." Tony Robbins, um, Tony Robbins, uh, call things, one of his retreats. And I was like, Oh wow. Like, so you know exactly what I mean when I was talking about things. And she was like, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly what they do. So, um, I think it's, it's, it's like any kind of, um, any kind of spiritual belief, religious kind of thing. If you have faith in what, uh, they're doing, uh, then that's, that's fine with me. Like, that's cool. And he has a, a system that he's kind of worked out and a lot of people, it works for a lot of people. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, we, we recently were at another conference that had some almost quasi spiritual elements to it. And it seems like, uh, at least in the live version, you know, uh, speaking and, and on stage that there's this craving for meaning that, uh, some of these events maybe fill 
And that probably also translates to copywriting as well. You know, a lot of what we write um, gives meaning to, you know, brands or experiences that uh, without good copy, you know, it's, it's not really there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I, I spend all this time kind of in this world and like analyzing copy and all this kind of stuff. And there's a, a love hate relationship, like the world, the entire world has with advertising. Like I was listening to something today um, where chaps saying how much people hate advertising and they hate the industry. They don't, they've got ad blockers and people don't like seeing it. And uh, we were in London recently uh, getting the plane and, and Ruth pointed out kind of like we were coming back from Japan and would not really notice the advertising while we we're out there because um, it's not quite as in your face. Whereas if you're on the London Underground, there's adverts everywhere and what have you. But I do remember there being like a study that said that people actually prefer to see some kind of interaction rather than just blank walls. So it's this weird world where you kind of think what you do as a copywriter is sometimes negative it was like, all right you're in advertising you you're selling things people don't want but actually nine times out of ten people do want this stuff and um if, as long as it's a good product that you're selling then what you're really doing is is finding a way to um to kind of confirm people's uh, views and, and reassure them that the thing that they want to buy is a good thing to buy uh, i always flashes to mind john ford another great copywriter always uh, he was the one who brought the idea to me that you you can only really confirm um, what people already believe. There's no, there's, it's very rare that you can change people's minds so that when you're writing copy, you should be trying to uh, confirm people's uh, already uh, held uh, opinions and beliefs and, and, and um, support what they want to hear. So that always kind of spit, sticks in my mind that really we're kind of supporting people's ideas and giving them reassurance the other side of that the flip side of that i always think with uh, specifically a long copy sales letter you're really the idea um is in the headline lead like you're, you're making that emotional call um does this connect with me do i want this do i believe this do i want to believe this um is this a good thing um yes or no and you make that judgment as a reader in the first six pages the rest of the letter therefore like why is there another 40 pages is to justify to to almost like step next to that buyer and say right okay you want this and i get why you want it but you're going to have to explain this to your partner you're going to have to explain it to other people as to and to justify why you want this idea um and so a lot of copywriting for me is is about reassuring the reader that yep this is a good reason like here's some proof here's some testimonials here's some social proof of why this is good here's here's a amazing offer like and no one would like throw this away with this opportunity so it's all about reassurance so i think um you can look at uh, copywriting and advertising generally as being like this negative thing where we're trying to get people to do stuff they don't want to do um which is how like some of my best friends describe what i do um but at the same time like this it is a way of communicating um quite a major thing in our lives of, of how we kind of interact with the uh, material world that's that sounds a little bit too philosophical. Yeah, but but I think I think you're exactly right. So we talked a little bit about how you got started and some of the things that you focused on as you were learning the skills of copywriting early on. As you've gone through the rest of your career over the past, you know, decade and a half or so, what other things have you done to grow your skill set and to get better at copywriting and some of the other things that you do today? So unfortunately there's there's no secret to it. Um, you've got to read um, more than uh, anyone else uh, and just read, 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 read. Um, the key thing is to read everything and, and anything. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be highbrow literature or uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be copy or, or anything like that. It's just read as much as you can and, and consume as much um, different literature as possible. Um, and in fact, if you only read Proust, um, your copy will probably be a bit crap. So um, it, you've got to read as, as varied as possible. Um, do Does anybody we, read Proust, though? I, that's, I don't. Uh, that's well, my, my, one of my best friends, like he's a teacher, and he, he thinks it's brilliant. I tried to read it on a flight to America once, and I was, I was like embarrassed because I was like, this is crap. Like, I, I'm not enjoying this. 
yeah in my experience as well yeah <laughs> we, we can be together on that bro. but yeah no i didn't i didn't get on with it so i stopped reading um but yeah you read as much as possible read as widely as possible um read copy um, you, you have people like uh, your Joe Sharifas and stuff read a, a pack a day, and and, and that's um, good advice. Read bad stuff, like be aware of it. Read critically as well. Like don't just read something and then just go, oh, yeah, that was okay. Like think about what was good about it, where uh, if you saw a good turn of phrase, make a note of it. Uh, if you saw something done well, um, try and read things critically and, and, and uh, analyze stuff. Um, that obviously is kind of like, oh, I've just got to go and read. The, the other thing is write every day, I think. Um, I, I've, I've probably written every day for like the past 15 or so years, which um, seems crazy to me now. But then at the same time, people often wonder how I'm able to produce um, writing and write quite quickly. And it's, it's because I've been, I've been practicing for God knows how long. Um, so a lot of things just I kind of believe in that rote learning idea that if you're doing it all the time, your natural base level will just slowly rise and rise. So uh, something that I can kick out much quicker than others but will already be at a, a decent level. Um, so I would definitely do write every day, write stuff that you enjoy um, and, and, and try and like, if you're writing copy all the time, don't just do that like flip things around i I spoke to someone um who works for the bbc in 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 the uk here and they uh spoke about how when they're writing advertising they they don't follow any form they were like they'll just write it like a poem maybe and like line break wherever they want to uh they can put it all back together afterwards but it was just that kind of for that natural flow you've got to find whatever you um you use uh, what suits your style so uh, i i kind of write from beginning to end and and kind of keep going back to the beginning and, and flowing it and then get to the next sentence and then go back to the beginning and read through it again and develop it like that but then other people write in different sections they might jump around so you've got to find what's natural to you but the best way to do that as i say is just read every day write something every day and then um and just stick at it <laughs> and trust that one day you'll get to a, a good place. You mentioned earlier that you're possibly a workaholic, um, which many people can relate to. Uh, so can you just talk through your business today and what it looks like? I mean, how you're making your money today, how much time you're spending speaking versus podcasting versus teaching versus writing books. Can you just talk through your time and the business structure? So I, I kind of I, I have retainers with with different people. Um, so doing kind of what I'd call my core copywriting work, um, which um, kind of keeps the bills paid and what have you. Then I I'll have like little fun things that and and when I say fun things, it's like maybe companies that wouldn't necessarily be able to afford my normal rates and what have you, but I want to work with them and. and do that stuff so i'll have that uh then i have the my kind of what i disc well then there's the the book side of things and the author um headline which is uh i have the art of the click which is already out and that kind of does royalties i mean it's not really about that but that kind of does its work and promotes me uh, around the world i was going to say around the place but it is around the world it is uh some people in mexico was raving about the other day which is lovely but that's uh i'm kind of trying to write the next book at the same time so trying to find a little bit of time to do that each day but then i love talking to people about copy and that's where the podcast came from that to me is like a kind of hobby um which i'll do in my spare time because i see it as like a bit of fun i do a lot of like comedy well i say comedy that's being bold what people tell me is funny but and i think is funny but there's like little skits in the uh, podcast between interviews and stuff and so i that's my enjoyment so i'll kind of put that in my spare time but then at the same time that's getting a return because people are finding out more and saying oh actually well can you do work for us as well so that's a kind of indirect uh, business enterprise and then speaking gigs is when people ask me uh, to talk and more and more people do so um that obviously uh, brings in a bit of money too but the truth is um, I'm at that kind of stage where I don't, I've kind of maxed out my time. So I am 
trying at the moment to figure out exactly where I want to be and whether I want to take it to kind of like a, an agency where you'd go through and get Glenn Fisher standard copy, um, but uh, it might be written by my dog, or whether I kind of just leave it at that, and that's as much success as I want, and like level it there. So it's it's a bit weird, and I'm still trying to figure that out. Like I was talking about getting an assistant, uh, and that, that seemed like the most preposterous thing in in the world because I just see myself as this little guy from Grimsby. So uh, it, so I'm just at that stage now, trying to figure it out. Um, the way I get around doing that. And the way I managed to produce what many might look at and go, how do you produce all this, is that I made a decision like, and it was one of the big lucky things about working with Agora was that I, I knew early on when I changed career from being like an accountanty person to a writer, I knew I needed to love what I did. And I do love every aspect of my um of, of what I do these days, whether it's doing a podcast, writing copy and kind of finding people's voices for them and all this kind of stuff. So I enjoy doing it. So as much as possible, I try and um, make sure that that stays that way um, and not start resenting things because that's when you get into trouble. Yeah. You say you're just a, a guy from Grimsby, but you've written a book that has gotten attention from a, a pretty amazing cast of other copywriters, you know, Drayton Bird and Andy Maslin and Vicky Ross. They've all said really nice things about your book. So I, I'd love to talk more about your book. What was the catalyst for writing it? And, you know, talk us through the process of, uh, you know, putting all of that stuff together. Yeah. Um, ego was the uh, main catalyst. <laughs> no, I, I, I just, I always, very nice. <laughs> I always knew I wanted to kind of write books and stuff, and, and that's ultimately the, the kind of aim of uh, why I became a writer. Uh, I, I always wanted to just kind of write fiction and become the book reviewer for the Guardian newspaper here in England, but unfortunately not many people could do that, and that's not how it works. Uh, but I knew I always wanted to do a book, um, or books rather, And but what was interesting, and I, I told this to someone else because I, I hopefully it might kind of give people pause for thought and kind of look at things differently but I always thought like when you wrote a book you had to like write your magnum opus like right I'm going to write I'm going to sit down and it's going to be Ulysses straight off we're not we're not mucking about with like the portrait of Nazi we're going straight into like my masterpiece that everybody's going to be like oh my god that that man look what he's created and I thought like that for for quite a while about like the whole idea of writing books like and and I actually deferred going to do a master's because I just didn't feel as though I was ready to write like a book or do anything like that and went to work. Um, but then also over the time, whilst I was um, learning all this stuff, I obviously discovered the world of copywriting and marketing and seemed to have a, a natural knack for it. And I suddenly, so you say about the kind of what, how did the book come about? It was, I suddenly realized, hang on a minute. I'd been kind of writing little blogs and stuff for quite a while. And then they started adding up and, and I kind of could see this a, a book in it. I was like, well, actually, I think you've almost kind of got a book with all this stuff that I've been writing. So I kind of collated all of that stuff together and, and saw where the gaps were and was like, all oh, right, well, actually, you'd need a section on this. And it just, I, I kind of scrambled it all together and kind of went, right, there's something there. That That is enough content for a book. Um, then I went and put a proposal together uh, with the publisher uh, here in the UK, Harriman House, and that was really useful for me um, in the sense that they challenged me. Like, I could have just self-published it. I've been publishing books for Gore and stuff in the UK, but I wanted to have that um, confirmation from someone who didn't know who I was and was like, no, no, this is a book that you should publish and it's worth publishing. Um, so I did this whole proposal and that really pushed me to analyze how it was and how that book would look. Put that together and then the editing process with the the publisher, the editor I had there was fantastic. Like he changed the way I saw things and like, uh, and I thought I was a, the writer, but he was fantastic the way he kind of broke things down and made, made it clearer. Um, what became the book that is there now um, started out as just me jotting thoughts down and blogs. So, so that was a very organic way. And, and it was, it was it, at some point it turned into a thing and it was like, Oh no, this is a book. And that's when I had to think, well, this isn't, 
yeah, it's not like my magnum opus. I feel as though I can write better books, but like this has a value and it's interesting. And I sent it out to obviously industry types and what have you. And they were like, yeah, this is really good. And then the, the reaction has been really positive. So I see that book as kind of what I learned in those first um, years. And now what it's really positive for me personally is that it kind of opened the door to say, well, actually, you can write a book about anything. You've written a book about copywriting. You, I had no idea I was going to do that, but I have. And now that's expanded my uh, understanding of what you can produce. And, and I've, it's allowed me to be more playful. So the next book's a bit kind of broader. Um, but at the same time, I've got lots of other ideas for how you can kind of do different things. So in conclusion, don't just kind of sit there going, I've got to write this like magnum opus and produce this thing. Just kind of start um, kind of putting ideas together again, uh, as it always is, just comes down to little ideas. Uh, what I would advise anybody who's thinking about doing a book or something like that is start with a contents page and kind of break it down as to what you would cover. Um, that the hardest thing is anybody who writes long copy will know is kind of trying to write 10,000 words is hard enough trying to write 50,000. You can soon get lost. I, I have no idea what my book looks like anymore. It's become too big for me to understand. Um, so you need to have that contents page to, and, and to see if a natural uh, narrative of the book um, that you can kind of hang everything on. Uh, that was probably the, the breakthrough moment for when I thought, yeah, there is something here. Is there anything else that you would do differently or that you already are doing differently the second round, especially for copywriters who want to work on their first book? Are there any other mistakes we should avoid that maybe you made? <laughs> yeah. Um, learn to spell. Uh, that would probably, <laughs> probably help. Uh, I'm a terrible speller uh, for a man who earns his money writing. But um, one, the biggest thing for me was a... Um, breaking it down into that content so what i did this time was um make sure i had that full like narrative laid out and i've got like post-it notes for each section um filled in uh this time which i didn't before i filled in kind of bullet points each in each chapter of things that i want to cover um i'd probably i researched um on like it was on the job whilst i was doing it last time because i was kind of doing little bits of the book at, at a time whereas this time i'm kind of focusing my research more so i know i need to find out this about that so um by having that content space that allows you to do that you can go and be more pro like uh focused on finding what you need to write um but otherwise it, it's just a case of oh and write bits that you if you're not feeling I, it's the same when you're writing a, a long copy sales letter if, if you're not feeling that kind of lead that day if you're not feeling particularly creative and, and you need that creativity really at the, in the lead section or in in a uh, the, the kind of headline uh, complex you might but you not quite feeling it write the offer like go and do something that maybe requires a little bit less creativity that said disclaimer you should put as much creativity into every element of a sales letter but there's different moments for writing different things and i think it's the same for a big but if you kind of know that you've got chapter seven is going to be about x and you know just exactly how to write that go and write that before you've written chapters one to six kind of thing but the last chapter of the book that i i wrote the first one was written on a plane to america in fact and that was the first chapter so it's it's just about moving around things and kind of don't like don't kill yourself just because you're stuck on a bit of a flow like um, I think it's a Hemingway tip was always to like stop in the middle of a paragraph when you finished your writing so that the next day when you come back to it, you, you've got, you know exactly where to start and you're kind of straight into it. Um, so always kind of just move around and, and give yourself the freedom to do that. Yeah, I think that Hemingway tip is a great one unless you come back to your work and you can't remember even with half of the thought where you were. So, <laughs> so be careful. <laughs> I did, you know, I, I did do, I've done that. And I was yeah, like, exactly. what was I talking about here? Like this is So we've talked a bit about uh, your writing business, about your book. You also speak on stage. You have a podcast. How have you leveraged, and maybe the speaking came first, I don't know, but how have you leveraged your book in order to, um, you know, promote your podcast or get on stage more? Um, or, or what are the things that you're doing in order to um, share what you know on stage? 
as far as the book goes, that is one of the, um, it's probably like a, quite a barrier to entry to get it, like, cause it takes a bit of work up front to get the book. But, um, as far as, uh, leveraging it as a promotional tool and like, let's put cynicism hat on here. It is an incredible, um, uh, tool to use. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I, I've made millions and millions of pounds, um, for, agora and what have you in my copy there but and no one really cares but as soon as you've got a book it's like oh my god this, this guy's got a book like someone's approved him so it's a really good um credibility play and it's a really good way to kind of uh, at once like do a this sounds ridiculous but like a mind dump of all of this knowledge and kind of go oh right he knows what he's talking about um i, I work with clients now who have come to me because they've read the book and been like oh my god like like, this is amazing. I've not, never thought of things like that before. Could you apply that same uh, thinking to our business and, and to our agencies and what have you? And that's been really positive. So it's produced a lot of direct, specific kind of um, copy work, uh, which has been fantastic. Um, what it's also done, though, is, uh, has raised my profile. So in the kind of social atmosphere, so I spend a lot of time on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And having that there, it's just, it gives you so many options. You can obviously do your um, testimonial kind of things where you might run testimonials. You can do competitions regularly so that people can win copies of it, sign copies of it. You can get, you can take little uh, pieces out of the book to um, promote and what have you. So it's just, it is a, an absolute wealth of promotional material. So I would advise people to do that if they're trying to, um, market themselves as a copywriter as a copywriting business uh, it's a very good uh, tool to use uh, and i i i mean i get like i've finally like a long time after i should have been like i've started asking people who contact me where did you find out about me and like i've now finally started to kind of put two and together but a lot of people go oh, I, I read the book or i saw the book or i did this thing and so it's it's been responsible for a lot of work um which is fantastic. Uh, what, one thing on top of that, though, what you can do is you've got to still, for me, I think you've still got to run with it and be there with it. So it's not good enough just to kind of go, right, there's my book, nice one, come to me. You've got, I've, I'm always on Twitter. I'm always kind of trying to interact with people. I engage with people as much as possible. If, if you read the book and you email me, I will respond to you. I will talk to you. I will start a conversation. I, I think in the book, I, if you say this is the beginning of a relationship, copyright is changing all the time. So that book hopefully will survive for a few years and, and be valid, but um, things will change. So it's a, it's a conversation, and I see that as a, a great kind of way to open a conversation. If you read that book and you get on with it and find it useful, that means we're probably going to be on the same page on a lot of things. So it's great to start a conversation kind of knowing, oh, I, yeah, I know this Glenn Fisher guy. I've, I've read this stuff. I know he's on the same wavelength as me. And then that develops from there. So a really good tool. This is tempting. This is making me want to write a book now, Glenn. <laughs> Do it. Um, so Do it. so um, we've talked a lot about your wins and, you know, working at Agora, the book, speaking, podcasts. It sounds like you've got everything together um, and you've had a lot of success. Can we talk about some of the struggles you've had as you've grown your business? You mentioned one already, just that now you're you're kind of out of time. You don't have any more hours to give. So how do you, how do you scale at this point? Uh, which I know you mentioned you're figuring out. What are some of the other struggles you've experienced as you've grown your platform and as you've grown your business? For me, this is like a massive thing. And I, I, you'll have to warn me if I get too, uh, too uh, kind of philosophical, philosophical about it or whatever. But um, for all of the great success um, I've had and um, I'm having, I, I have enormous amounts of anxiety uh, and um, all of the same things that I'm sure everybody listening to this has about imposter syndrome and, and worrying whether you uh, are there, fear of missing out. Like if you're not, if you engage in social media and then you're not on social media, you start getting panicky about that. Uh, you you working freelance is, is a massive, uh, interesting like nightmare uh, that's brilliant that you've got all this free time but at the same time you i'll be sat there if you don't respond to my email and i've sent you some copy and i don't hear from you for two days i'm thinking that's it it's all over like they've found me out kind of thing and then i get an email saying this was fantastic 
and you so all of these things are a massive um cause of anxiety and worry and stress um which everybody gets and it doesn't matter i i tend to believe i've spoken to a lot of successful people now um in the advertising world and and i don't think that goes away and that could seem like a sad and depressing thing but i think that's there's some positivity in that in the sense that no matter where you are uh, no matter what stage you are at your career it, everybody's suffering that so it's like the spider in the bath it's like it's as afraid it's as afraid of you as you are of it so um so that from but that for me i know like we talk about it a lot with with my partner it's my anxieties some of them are not founded people would, well glenn you're successful you're doing all this stuff but i i can't get that out of my head uh, i just need to learn how to manage that and and as you mentioned the time thing and, and my time being limited that creates stresses in itself so it's all about for me is trying to uh, learn to manage that be reasonable give yourself time to panic and and feed the anxiety because it's real it's like that's what we do that's human but at the same time give yourself moments to relax and rest and and do that uh, one of the biggest things uh, this started in when i was uh, working in an office full-time in agora but it's led uh, i do it now still run my life this way but i, I can remember years and years ago um, I was in charge of the copy team and my boss would come to me going, oh, we need this or we need that. And I'd be going, well, we're doing this already. And we were kind of, we had no um, workflow system in place. And we, we ended up um, coming using Asana. Uh, I know people use like Slack and, and Trello and all these things. And I think whatever works for you is cool. But I, I ended up using this Asana um, thing and I was able to document what I had on. Uh, work-wise and it changed everything for me because now I can see what I've got um, so one of the biggest ways to get rid of a lot of the work anxiety for me was to um, use something like that I still use that today with all of the um, like I've got this call as a task today I've got the other writing jobs that I had today and then I can move things around as and when and that helps to take some of the um, anxiety off me uh, one of my biggest uh, problems I find is that I I, because I work quite fast, so I, I'll kind of get stuff done, and then I think, have I done enough? And I often have, but if you haven't got a record of what you've done, you kind of worry about it. So using something like Asana and using that kind of boring practical tool, um, I, I find that a lot of copywriters are creative people, and, and for that reason, you're a bit kind of wangy and weird and all over the place. So having that kind of boring thing that helps to stop me from going too insane um, but that's one of the, my biggest uh, challenge, biggest flaw has been my anxieties um, over the years, which I'm interested in. And that's part of um, the scope of my next book to try and understand that and uh, hopefully help other people overcome them. I can't wait for that next book. Um, Glenn, if you sort of lost everything in your business right now, you don't have the book, you don't have the speaking engagements, the retainer clients went away, you know, no list, uh, no podcast. What would you do now to start over to rebuild what you've got? Uh, you know, where would you start? What would you do in order to become a copywriter again? Yeah, it's a really good question. That um, So if I'd lost, I've lost everything, but I've still got my skill <laughs> um i would probably i would go and this is what i say to most people when they come and ask me how to get clients and stuff like that which is one of the biggest for freelancers certainly but i would go into as into well i was going to say as many businesses it depends how successful i was but i would start with the businesses that i i was interested in and i would go into them and i would show them um how why they were doing their copywriting wrong. Um, so I'd go in and say, do you realize uh, because of the way you're communicating with your audience, um, you're losing, uh, you're leaving money on the table. Um, let me show you exactly how you could do that. Uh, depending on how much secret money I had stashed away, whether I could, would do that for free and show them and, and give them evidence um, to prove it, uh, or whether I'd try and charge very small for that to begin with. Um, but I would go to businesses and show them um, how they can change there is so many businesses in the world I've, I've come to realize uh, so much writing so much copy out there that is produced by i was going to say like nutters and, and robots but it's not it's just predominantly produced by people who haven't got the time to do it 
and have got other skill sets. So if you're a business owner and you're uh, really, really behind the product and you know the product, that's because you've got a skill to create that product. It doesn't mean you necessarily know how to correctly write about it and sell it. Um, but if you can get a writer, if, as, a, as a copywriter, as a trained person who knows how to sell stuff, you have that skill set. So you need to go and tell these people, this is how you can do that. Um, so I'd probably start with that. Um, literally on a practical basis, that, that involves going to the networking events, the business networking events and that kind of stuff locally, try and speak directly to the business owners. Um, despite, I mean, everyone listening to this is a copywriter or a marketer and knows about this world, but I, I'm sure it's the same in America. So many people don't. So many people don't even realize that someone writes the copy. Uh, and, and that's a massive um, opportunity for copywriters who, who need to make that start, find their, carve their kind of niche out. Um, so I would do that. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about reading daily and not just reading books about copy, but reading the newspaper, reading magazines, um, and also looking for ads. When I'm reading magazines, Oftentimes, it's just to see really cool products or subscriptions, and I'm constantly looking at these products and like, oh, this would be a really cool client, or you could make this a little bit better and the message a little bit better. So I think part of reading to learn um, and to learn about messaging and the craft of writing, it's also like you can find ideal clients just in the newspaper and magazines, too. And if you've got the, I mean, we're talking from a desperate situation there, but if you're not desperate, you could, if you've got the time, you can still just ask. You'd be really surprised uh, sometimes by what you can get just by asking. Um, and, and if you get rejected, that's fine. Rejection is going to happen all the time. Everyone gets rejected um, for, for jobs, for work, uh, and that's fine. But um, just keep throwing ideas out there. Be as liberal as possible with your ideas. Um, it's, it's one of, it's kind of, I'm figuring out my kind of top advice bit pieces and i would say like you've got to trust your own ability to come up with ideas and your own brain to kind of renew those ideas and just keep coming up with new ones and then give your ideas away let other people use them um, because they will ultimately figure out that what they need are those ideas and they can't come up with them so even if they steal one of your ideas they'll be coming back for more and that time you'll be prepared and and charge a lot for it so be um, be generous with your ideas because uh, that's what separates you as a copywriter, I think. I wanted to ask you about one of your blog posts. It said, you know, it was basically about why copywriters should embrace their competition. Can you just speak to that that topic a little bit? Why should we embrace our competition? I've got I've got a lady called Mary Ellen Tribby uh, flashing in my like uh, mind at the moment because I think it was I think I read years ago in any of your eyed thing or early to rise or, or one of those old e-letters um and she was saying about like the abundance principle and 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 why competition isn't competition and i think working in agora um taught me this as well um and the whole kind of when you've got a list a, a piece of data that like you've got ten thousand people they're going to be connected with um so if you're reading a daily e-letter um some of those people are going to be connected with the author and whatever he or she says to buy, they will go buy. Some won't be, but they'll be connected with someone else. And if you can do a JV deal and get 50% from someone by selling through someone else who you're not going to sell with, then that's cool because everybody gets paid. And that kind of principle, that kind of abundant principle has always worked for me in, in all different um, areas. So even, even today, like um, in the, in the podcast space, there's, this podcast, uh, which is a copywriting podcast, there's my podcast, which is a copywriting podcast, there's other copywriting podcasts. You could say, oh, right, okay, well, we need to kind of not do this. I, let's not get him on the podcast because then he's, other people are going to find out about that podcast. But the fact is pe there is so many people out there. There are so many different angles for stuff um, that you're going to find different ways um, of uh, connecting and therefore you will reach different audiences. So I, I just spoke to uh, a, a copywriter in australia uh, called kate toon i appeared on her podcast she appeared on my podcast and therefore we have now both reached different audiences uh, some people will want to connect some people won't um so as a copywriter it's the same for a job um if i'm i'm busy right now i might not be able to take on a job i give it to someone else 
um, that person then uh, is busy another time and they go, oh, actually, well, Glenn gave me that job, so I'll I'll shout out to him. So I feel uh, it's more efficient from a kind of economy point of view, but also, and perhaps more fundamentally, it's just a nicer way to be. If you see things as your competition, then it kind of gets tiring um, to kind of try and stay ahead. It's I like the idea of building everybody's tower higher um, rather than knocking everybody else's down. Um, so you're by de facto the tallest. Um, so it's just a nicer way to be. And I'm trying to, uh, to be like that in, uh, in my more mature later years. Yeah, that's great advice. So a final question for you, Glenn, where do you see copywriting going in the future? What's, what's next for all of us? Um, I don't know is the, is the answer. I think probably, um, I don't know. Cause once, once you're in it, um, you can't kind of get that distance. I feel like there's, um, I feel like it's getting weirdly a wider audience and people becoming more and more aware of copy as a skill. I've, I've kind of entered a little bit into the agency world here in the UK, um, more recently. And it's, it's interesting to see kind of designers and, um, creative directors really rule the roost there and the copywriters are not seen as they're kind of just like brought in at the last minute or what have you, um, which I think is a mistake. I think it's a collaborative process, any piece of copy, no matter whether it's direct response, indirect or what have you. Um, so I think like raising the profile of copywriters um, is a good thing. And I think that will happen more uh, as we go along. I can tell you what won't happen. So when people worry about AI and all this kind of stuff, like making copyrights redundant, I don't believe in that. I think um, you will never uh, replace the need for emotional connections and only humans can deal with that. So I, I don't worry about anything like that. I think you can actually use that stuff uh, as a benefit, as a bonus, so that you can use the data that we collect from big data and from all this kind of stuff to um, understand more about the audience that was writing to and use our innate skill to uh, develop that. Um, so I think it's, there's, there's plenty of work. I can, the amount of like websites I land on that I need to rewrite and I'm just like, what the hell jargon nightmare is going on here? Um, it suggests to me that there's plenty of uh, bad copy to be converted into good copy uh, to keep everybody happy for quite some time. Um, I think what will um, become more and more uh, prevalent is the whole um, personalization stuff. And I think that will run out. I think people are probably going down the wrong. They, they're, they're filing almost too niche and too personalized um, and sometimes missing the um, universal uh, emotions and experiences that we have uh, that the great advertising uh, really talks to. I think it's getting a little bit too, um, too kind of specific data based. Uh, I think it will zoom out a little bit more. But uh, other than that, I uh, I have no idea. I just kind of I'm along for the ride. We'll see what happens. All right, Glenn. So if someone listening wants to reach out to you or order your book, where should they go? Uh, so they can find me at. Um, allgoodcopy.com uh, it's probably the easiest website to go to uh, that has links to blogs and, and my podcasts and stuff you can find the podcast all good copy uh, just by searching on wherever you uh, listen to podcasts uh, you can buy the book on amazon uh, i think it's on the american amazon as well so you can get it there um, the, or you can go to harriman house um, it's available there it's an audio book as well and I, it's being translated into chinese at the moment i believe uh, if there's any chinese speakers listening um but otherwise you can find me on twitter as well uh, all good copy um which i spend quite a lot of time on there uh, and if you want to see pictures of my dog uh, then instagram is more the place for that which i believe is glenn.fisher uh, with two ends but uh, that's more the books i'm reading and uh, what pablo and my dog is up to um, who features quite heavily in my world uh, of copy as well so uh, well, you can find me. I think I'm the most famous Glenn Fisher on the internet now. There was a Canadian hockey player uh, who had top spot. Uh, if he wins like a hockey trophy or something, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm back down. But uh, I think if you search Glenn Fisher, I'll, I'll come out on top. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Glenn. It's been great. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Thank you.